0: Uh, certainly the focus is usually on the cross as we uh, move toward Easter, and that is going to be our focus this morning. It's been just a few weeks ago that we finished up our sermon on the mount. But Jesus preached two different sermons on two different mountains. He preached the sermon on the mount that we just Went through a few weeks ago on the Mount of Olives, but he also preached a sermon on Mount Calvary. And he preached that sermon with seven statements. And I've talked about these before. I normally like to go to the seven statements of Jesus on the cross when we get to this time of year. And I've shared some of these last words with you before, but I, as you know, I'm a student of history. I love history and I. Uh, Some of my favorite last words were, and all of you students should remember Nathan Hale. Anyone remember Nathan Hale? Don't embarrass yourself by not raising your hand. But uh, if you do, then uh, Nathan Hale was the great American hero of the Revolutionary War. And before he was hanged as a spy by the British, he uttered the famous words, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Some of you musicians and those that love music might remember uh, Beethoven's last words. Shame on you if you don't. But his last words that I found were friends applaud, the comedy is finished. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French emperor, his last word was recorded as simply Josephine. How romantic, and all the ladies... (laughs) You know, a tear came up in their eye, and they poked their <laughs> husband and said, "Is I, am I going to be your la- last word? Is you know, am my my name going to be on your lips?" Boy, that elicited a few laughs back there. I, I won't ask why. You know, I I love Civil War history, so I picked out a few last words from the Civil War uh, characters. One of them, Stonewall Jackson. Uh, He was delirious with fever as uh, having lost an arm and uh, dying of pneumonia. And his last words were, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Robert E. Lee, uh, fallen in disrepute perhaps in recent years, but still one of my heroes. Uh, His last word, having suffered a stroke in 1870, uh, and, uh, you know, in- unconscious for a day or so before he passed away. But his last words were, strike the tent. And, of course, let's not out, leave out our northern brethren, uh, General John Sedgwick, who was a Union commander in 1864. His troops called him Uncle John. He was about 60 years of age, well-beloved by his troops. And uh, he was concerned about his... Men, they were dodging because there were some Confederate snipers about a thousand yards away and they were not manning their guns. Every time a bullet would whiz by, they would duck. And that irritated him to no end, so he hopped up on top of the parapet and he said, Men, be ashamed of yourselves. While they couldn't hit an elephant at this... Di- he never finished. A Confederate, a Confederate miniball caught him right below the left eye and those were the last words he ever uttered. You shouldn't have laughed at that, by the way. I see we have a morbid crowd here this morning. Horatio Nelson, I love our British cousins and uh, uh, they have a great naval tradition and one of their great admirals, uh, Admiral Nelson, having uh, defeated or in the process of defeating the French, and that's always fun to defeat the French, uh, he said, Thank God I have done my duty. And on a more serious note, we're going to talk about the last words of Jesus, but there's also the last words of another great founder of a great religion, the Islamic religion, Muhammad. The Quran records. That, and we're going to look to the Bible to find out what Jesus' last words were. So if we were going to find out what Muhammad's last words were, we should go to the Holy Book of Islam, the Quran. And the Quran tells us that the last words of Muhammad were, May Allah curse the Jews and Christians. What a contrast. And we don't have time to go into that. I've preached on the difference between Islam and Christianity before, but you can look no further than the last words of the two, if you want to call them founders, of those two great religions. One, Mohammed, speaks of a curse. He calls upon his God to curse those that he viewed as his enemies, and that were, those were the Jews and the Christians. And now we're going to look at the last words of Jesus... And the very first phrase that we're going to see, and of course we're going to take all of the Gospels, and, and we're not going to turn to any specific Gospel, but I'm going to take verses from all four Gospels and harmonize and get the seven last statements of Jesus. And as we go into that, in Luke 23, verse 34, perhaps the most famous of all the words that Jesus uttered while dying on the cross, in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Mohammed pronounced a curse upon his enemies, and Jesus, while hanging on the cross, uttered a word of forgiveness. He had a prayer. He asked his Father. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now there's a great test. If you want to test your compassion... Many of us, if we feel wronged, one of the comforts we have is that, well, there's a God in heaven. And He's going to judge. And one day, they're going to get what's coming to them. When they stand before the Lord one day, He's the great avenger of all that has ever been done wrong. And boy, He's going to punish those that have done wrong and treated me wrong and treated others wrong. That's part of what God gave us, a sense of justice. But think about Jesus, His compassion. Jesus is asking the Father to remove the sin of His crucifiers from their account. He's saying, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. They do not comprehend. They don't understand what they're doing. Do not hold them accountable for this sin. Forgive them. And I'm reminded as I think about those words of, of course, John, we all know John 3.16, but what about John 3.17? Where the Bible says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Do you know why the gospel is called the gospel? That simply means the good news. It is because it is good news. It is good news to everyone who has ever felt like they have so messed up their life they can never get straight again. You need to hear the gospel. Jesus came not to condemn you. Jesus did not come to punish you. Let me remind you that you are already condemned. We are already standing under the judgment of God. Jesus came to save us, to forgive us. It is good news. The gospel is good news because when you think about the cross, it should give you hope. The gospel is hope to everyone who has no hope. The gospel is hope to the condemned and the guilty and the brokenhearted. Listen, if you've got an alibi, I don't know that I can help you that much. But if you stand guilty, you're guilty of sin. You know that you're wrong. You know that you've done wrong. The gospel is good news. The Bible says in Romans 5, 6, Paul says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I can't I've shared this before many times but I can't think of a better symbol for Christianity than the cross. When you understand all that the cross means it's hope, it's forgiveness. What a wonderful symbol for our faith when we think about the cross. The very first words that Jesus uttered were, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. It is a message of forgiveness. And then Luke 23, verse 42 tells us the second statement he made. And he said unto Jesus, and of course this is the thief. And most of you know the background, but there were two thieves crucified on each side of Jesus. And if you read the four gospels, the gospels tell us that everyone was... Uh, was ridiculing Jesus and saying, you saved others, yourself you cannot save. And they were making fun of him. And the Bible says that both thieves were doing the same. They also were casting insults at Jesus. But Luke tells us that one of the thieves began to repent. And he began to reprimand his fellow thief. And he said, now wait a minute. We deserve our punishment. But this man has done nothing Deserving of death. And then he turned to Jesus. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if you're condemned to die... You've got a lawyer that's coming to visit you in prison and you've got your family that's coming to visit you and you could even have the victim's family that's coming to visit you and they all come to you and say, Listen, I I, I just, I forgive you for whatever you did and, and uh, I just wish we could put this behind us and, and move on. Those would be wonderful sentiments. But none of those people, not your family, not even the victim's family, not your attorney, not even the jailers have the authority to remove that sentence from you your sentence to die they can all tell you they forgive you and pat you on the back and tell you it's all it's you know we're not going to hold it against you but you're still going to die and that's like jesus saying father forgive them for they know not what they do that's a wonderful sentiment i mean if jesus was just a good man and he was willing to forgive that, that that's a wonderful thought and a wonderful sentiment that he would have to offer forgiveness to his enemies But if you're that condemned criminal in prison, only the governor or the president has the power to commute your sentence. To pardon you and remove that penalty. And my friend, in this statement that Jesus makes, He looks at this this thief and not only... Does he offer forgiveness, the sentiment of forgiveness, if that's all it was? He doesn't simply offer the sentiment of forgiveness, but he shows that he has the power to change our eternal destiny. He told the thief, today, you will be with me in paradise. I've often said that that is... My goodness, we could stay there the rest of the sermon, but we won't do it. But to think about this thief, there's so much so much truth there about how we're saved. The thief could not be baptized. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't give back all that he had stolen, the people he had injured. He couldn't make up for his failures and his sins. He was guilty. All he could do was look to Jesus and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We could go through, he repented, he recognized, because he told the other thief, I'm guilty, we're guilty. We deserve what we're getting. He wasn't blaming the justice system. He wasn't blaming his upbringing. He wasn't blaming his nagging wife. He wasn't blaming anybody else. He simply said, I'm guilty and you're guilty. He accepted responsibility. And then he looked to Jesus and he said, Lord. He recognized that Jesus was someone bigger than him. He didn't have a theology degree. He might not have understood it all. But he recognized that Jesus was Lord. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And boy, there's faith there. God had given him a grain of faith. What kind of kingdom does a man dying on a cross have? I just wonder if that thief might have heard Jesus preaching over the last three years. If he might have picked up a sermon or two as he was wandering around the community. He had certainly heard about this man Jesus who claimed he was, who was bringing in the kingdom of God. And yet dying on that cross somehow, that thief's heart, his faith is stirred. And he believes that this dying man has a kingdom. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today... Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, my friend, that is why me or you or anybody else that will put their faith and trust in Jesus can die with peace in our heart, not worried about our failures and our sins if we have brought them to the foot of the cross. Because if Jesus can take a thief with him to heaven, he can take you to heaven. He can take me to heaven. He can take anyone who will bring their sins to the foot of the cross and cling to the old rugged cross and trust in Jesus and in Him alone, and His righteousness alone for salvation. My friend, that is what the thief did. And my friend, Jesus said, not only do I have, do I offer the words of forgiveness, but I have the power to forgive. I have the power to redeem. I have the power to deliver. Not only from your sin, but from the judgment of your sin. The consequences of your sin. Jesus says, I am going to deliver you. Well, the third statement Jesus made, John 19, verse 26. You know, all the disciples had abandoned Jesus except one, John. John the apostle was the youngest of all the disciples. And we know that he was at the foot of the cross with the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And the Bible says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. And this, of course, is John recording this. And you know if you've studied the book of John, John never calls himself by name in his gospel. But when he refers to himself, he simply says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Love and it so there's John. He says, And the disciple standing by whom, whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then said he to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. Now, there's a sermon. Jesus is dying on the cross, he's Burying my sin and your sin. He's just saved the thief from hell and told him, You're going to go with me to heaven. But yet, somehow, in the midst of all of his agony and pain, he looks at his mother and he makes arrangements for her physical well being. He says, John, Mary's your responsibility now. Mary, if you need anything, John will take care of you now. That tells us first of all that Jesus had cared for his mother because he felt a responsibility to hand that off to someone else now that he was no longer going to be on the earth. So he had he had helped look after his mother, and now he gives his mother his the responsibility of of her care to John. There's a great sermon there. There's a great lesson there. Are you depressed? Are you feeling sorry for yourself? Do you feel like the world has dumped everything on your shoulders? One of the greatest treatments for depression, a feeling of feeling sorry for yourself is to look around at somebody else that you can help. Look at someone else. Jesus, hanging on the cross, he had time to look to the care of his mother. And my friend, one of, the, one of the best treatments for being down and out is to look around and, and give an a, a uplifting hand to someone else who needs a hand. Don't look in the mirror. You've often heard me use that example of, you know, looking in the mirror. I don't want to live in a room full of mirrors. I used to like mirrors when I was about 25. <laughs> now I just like old pictures. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of you can identify with that. Well, I tell you, you get depressed if you look at mirrors all the time. Throw them mirrors away and open a window. You know, look outside. And that's really what Jesus is is giving us an example here. Look outside and quit looking at a reflection of your own problems and your own trouble. My goodness, you'll go deeper and deeper and deeper into despair because it's probably not going to get any better the older we get. You're going to go deeper and deeper. Get your eyes off yourself. There's no help there. There's no help there. Put them on helping someone else. Think about you know, an old hymn we used to sing. Others, Lord, yet yes, others, let this my motto be. That as I live for others, I might live for Thee. Remember, the Bible says give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. A lot of folks quote that for financial purposes and that's okay. It has has an application there. But I tell you, more important than financial, that is in regard to, to the things of life. Do you want a helping hand? Give someone else a helping hand. You need a kind word, give someone else a kind word. You need forgiveness, give someone else forgiveness. Give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Jesus gave us that message. Well, then move on, if we will, to John 19, 28. It says, And Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. I thirst now, do you remember just a couple of weeks ago we were in psalm verse twenty two and and I showed you where David viewed the cross from afar a thousand years before the cross David wrote the twenty second psalm and in that twenty second psalm psalm twenty two verse fifteen He said, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you have brought me unto the dust of death. And Psalm 69 verse 21 says, they gave me gall for my meat and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. You see in that verse John says, Knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. And those two words are loaded with meaning. Jesus said, I'm the water of life. He that comes to me shall never thirst. But yet the water of life stated, I thirst. I thirst. And they gave him vinegar to drink, to quench his thirst. When Jesus was on the cross, it is a reminder, those two words to me are a reminder that God's purposes will be fulfilled. The Old Testament had prophesied that a Messiah would come, that He would die on a cross, that He would say, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That He would say, I thirst. And there in that cross, in those two words, we see that, my friend, when God says something, you can depend upon it. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall. When the hailing storms of doubt and fear assail by the living word of God, I shall prevail standing on the promises. When God makes a promise in His word, it's going to come to pass. You know, there are many types of Jesus in the Old Testament. We've gone through a couple in the last couple of weeks. Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, when he went to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, that is a type of Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, of course, is a type. And if you go through the Old Testament Scripture, you'll find many types. In Genesis, you'll see that he was prophesied that he would bruise the head of Satan. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, the great high priest. In Numbers, Aaron's rod that budded. In Deuteronomy, the year of Jubilee. In the book of Joshua, he is Jehovah saves, granting victory against the enemy. In Judges, he's the angel of the Lord that appears to Gideon. In Psalms, his feet and his hands are pierced. In Psalm 22. In Proverbs, he's the wisdom of God. In Isaiah, he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness risen with healing in his wings. God prophesied there would come on a sign, and he came. And my friend, the Bible is prophesying that one day Jesus is going to return again. And it says, as in the days of Noah, so will it be before Jesus comes again. And the Bible says in the days of Noah, everyone was going about their own business. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and taking in marriage. They gave no fault for God or the things of God until the flood came and took them away. And my friend, the Bible says that Jesus is coming back. He's going to rule and reign. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And just as sure as it prophesied that He would come and die on a cross, and He did, so just as surely, Jesus is going to come back. And I don't know when, no one, if anybody tells you they know when, rest assured they don't know. The Bible says no man knows. But I will tell you this, it's been 2,000 years since the Jewish people had a homeland. 1948, they went into... Palestine, and they have a homeland now for the first time in 2,000 years. We look around us at all that occurs, and I have to say, my friend, it must be getting closer. I do believe Jesus is coming. The Bible says that He's coming, and He is most certainly coming. You can bank on that. Well, the fifth statement Jesus made in Matthew 27, verse 46. The Bible says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lamai, sabacthani?" That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you remember a couple of weeks ago, where does that come from? Psalm 22, that is the very first verse. In Psalm 22, Jesus quoted that verse verbatim. There David in the 22nd Psalm, he's going through a difficult time in his life And he starts out that psalm of lament and that psalm of of, of prayer, if you will, in the midst of a difficult time. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we all know that the 22nd psalm is a picture of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus quotes that verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Well, I think if you look in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we get a picture of what that means. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And then Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, speaking of Jesus, Who His own self bore our sins in His own body on the tree... That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Both Paul and both Peter tell us that Jesus on the cross, He took our sin upon Himself. Jesus embraced your sin. What is the thing that you are most ashamed of in your life? Please don't blurt it out unless you feel led to do so. I think there's no danger of that. But think, what are you most ashamed of? What are you most afraid that people will find out about you? If you've repented of that, and I say if you've repented of that, because my friend, Jesus offers no forgiveness to the man who will not repent. If you're still doing it, then you're going to bear the responsibility for that sin. If you've not laid it aside, then it's still your sin. But if you've laid it aside and you're willing to lay it aside, you put it behind you and you repent of it, then my friend, Jesus has embraced it. It's His sin. He embraced it on the cross. You no longer bear it. You have quoted this verse many times, the old hymn, I love it. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Why would you tote your sin when Jesus has borne it for you? Lay it aside. Cast it down. Leave it there. Take it to the cross and leave it there. Leave it there. Don't tote it. Don't keep it as your own. Jesus has borne its price. He's borne its penalty. He has borne its shame. He has borne the separation it warrants from God. That is why He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He was bearing my sin and your sin on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Boy, we could continue on that thought. But let's move on to the sixth and the seventh statement that Jesus made on the cross. And of course, these two statements are really almost together. Luke records one and John records the other. And no doubt Jesus uttered these statements very close together. These were the last statements that each of them record that he made. In Luke 23, verse 46, the Bible says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice... He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's over now. It's over and Jesus is about to die. And he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We've all known the question and I've shared this with you before. But who killed Jesus? Who killed him? The Romans were certainly... They're a suspect, absolutely, because their soldiers and it was their political appointee, their political authority that condemned him to die, that gave an order of execution and gave orders to their military to take him out and crucify him. They physically nailed him to the cross. They made sure he was dead. They thrust a spear into his side. So the Romans... Physically crucified him, but did they kill him? What about the Jews? Through the centuries, some with ulterior motives have used the crucifixion of Jesus to be anti Semitic, to say the Jews killed Jesus. Was it the Jews that killed Jesus? Well, certainly they are a suspect because it was their religious leaders who were jealous of Jesus and who arranged and conspired to report him to the Roman authorities and to prepare a case against him, to frame him, if you will, so that he might be found guilty of some crime punishable by death. They said he claims to be a king. He's leading a rebellion against Caesar. He deserves to die. Or maybe it was you and I. Certainly we could argue that it was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was our sins that sent Him. He came to die for our sins. I think I've shared this story before, but I enjoyed reading it many years ago. A Baptist preacher of the last century, Dr. R.G. Lee. You can look him up on Google. He's been dead for many years now. but uh, He was a great preacher of the early 20th century, a Southern Baptist preacher. And he took a trip to uh, the Holy Land at one time. And he was up on Mount Calvary. They were showing him where Jesus had been crucified or where they believed the location was. And, and uh, the guide said, Has anyone been here before? And R.G. Lee, you can listen to some old tapes of him, had a real southern accent. He says, I have. He said, Really, sir? When were you here? 2,000 years ago. He said, I was here. He said, And I helped nail him to the cross. 2,000 years ago. Well, I understand his sentiment, and certainly we could all join in that sentiment. It was our sin that sent him to the cross. But I tell you, it was not the Romans that killed Jesus. It was not the Jews that killed Jesus. It was not even you and I that killed Jesus. With our sin, the Bible answers. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself points his finger at the guilty party. The one who died, the the murdered himself is the one who points his finger at the one who is guilty. He says in John 10, 17, Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And if that were not enough evidence, and the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God. So my friend, who killed Jesus? Nobody. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. The Romans didn't kill, they did not have... Do you remember what Jesus uh, told Pilate? Remember when Pilate got very disturbed? Pilate was a man of authority. He was used to having condemned people stand in front of him and most condemned people, if you're in front of someone you know has the power to set you free or to condemn you to death, you're going to have your eyes looking straight at their eyes Anything they ask, you're going to say, Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. You know, you're going to be very attentive. You want to give your story. You want to make your case known. And Pilate got so uh, disturbed with Jesus, he would ask Jesus a question, and Jesus wouldn't even look at him. He wouldn't answer him. Pilate said, you remember, remember Pilate, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, Why don't you answer me? Don't you know that I have the power to set you free or to condemn you? And remember, Jesus said, basically, you you have no power over me. You have no power over me except that that the Father allows you to have. No man takes my life from me. The Romans didn't have the power to kill Jesus. The Jews didn't have the wisdom to kill Jesus. You and I didn't have the power to kill Jesus. Jesus laid his life down of himself. He offered up His life. Nobody murdered Jesus. He gave His life. He offered up His life for you and for me. And then John, the final statement in John 19 verse 30, said, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. Now many of you know that of course, the Greek word that we translate into three words. But, but the original word is a Greek word called "tetelestai," And it was a word that simply meant finished. Completed. Done. If you look up some old documents that they found, they found when a servant would complete a task for his master he would return and he would utter that word, Tetelestia, done, finished. Interestingly, when the priest would inspect an animal prepared for sacrifice and he found that animal to be pure, he would utter that word. He'd look at that lamb, he'd feel of it, be sure it had no problems, it was okay to be sacrificed. He would say, Tetelestia, completed. Okay, finished, done, it's good to go. An artist, When an artist would complete his work of art, he would step back, admire his work. Look at that beautiful painting he had made. See no imperfection, nothing that needed to be added. And he would say, Tessalestiae. Complete. Nothing to be added. And I love this one. An accountant. And they've actually found documents from that period of time. When an account was paid in full, someone owed a debt, and that was paid They found written across that debt, this word, tetelestia. Finished. Paid in full. Nothing else owed. And the last one, the last time, that, or or the last way this word was used that I understand, was when a warrior had won a battle and returned to his commanders. He would utter that word to signify the battle was over and the victory had been won. Tetelestia. The enemy is finished. The battle is over. It's complete. It's done. And my friend, that phrase, it is finished. What a wonderful phrase for Jesus to end His work on the cross, to end His sermon on Mount Calvary with. It is finished. If you bring your sin to Jesus, you turn your back on your sin, you repent of your sin, you bring it to the foot of the cross, you confess it, you lay it down, don't take it away. It's finished. It's over. Jesus has paid for it. Are you worried about the future? Jesus is in charge of the future. It's over. It's finished. Take that word with you. It is finished. Jesus has completed the task I'm going to ask our musicians to come and prepare us a hymn of imitation. Jesus' second sermon on the mount the sermon not on the mount of olives but the sermon on the mount Calvary in that sermon he uttered these seven statements statements from his heart as he hung there dying statements of love, statements of forgiveness, statements of power statements of truth and of promise and finally, a statement of completion. Whatever it is, Jesus paid it all. It's all paid. We don't have to pay anymore. Jesus did it all for us. If you're here today, maybe the Holy Spirit is stirring your heart. Maybe you've never con- con- given your life to Jesus. you never confessed Him as Lord and Savior. I invite you to come. I'll be glad to pray with you. Maybe you just want to come pray about a burden that's on your heart. You just obey the Lord as we stand and sing.